professor of political science here at Villanova University and I'm also the graduate director. Uh, I teach mostly European politics uh, and the politics in other advanced industrialized countries. And so the topic of tonight's talk is anti-Americanism uh, in, in Europe. Uh, let me quickly start out with um, a few introductory remarks as to why you know this is a, an interesting topic. I mean, any of you who browse through the bookshelves, Barnes and Nobles and Borders, noticed there has been a proliferation of uh, books on this uh, subject matter. It's a real small little uh, cottage industry. It's been a real hot-button uh, issue with the way the world has been responding to uh, George Bush and the war in Iraq. Uh, you see frequently images on television of American embassies uh, being burned down, like last week in, in Belgrade, or American flags being, um, being burned. Uh, it's a topic that um, concerns the State Department. You know, the State Department, uh, three years ago, started a new initiative on public diplomacy that was aimed at improving American uh, image uh, abroad. So there are uh, multiple reasons why this is a, um, an interesting and relevant topic. For me personally, it is relevant. I'm of uh, Swiss extraction. I go back almost every year. I take uh, students back to Europe. So it's a frequent topic of, of conversation. Uh, and so I've started becoming interesting and uh, reading on it a little bit. Um, but today I don't want to talk about anti-Americanism globally, but specifically uh, to the, its manifestation uh, in, in Europe. And right up front, the central claim that I'm trying to make and, and support is that anti-Americanism in Europe is uh, more of a nuisance than a serious American foreign policy uh, problem. That is, if we start thinking about what exactly is anti-Americanism, uh, we will quickly realize that it is a much smaller uh, phenomenon than uh, widely being touted. That is, many more things go for anti-Americanism than actually warrant that specific label. And secondly, I will claim that once you uh, look at what unites Europe and the United States, what sort of shared interests and common values those two parts of the world uh, have, you will realize that whatever anti-Americanism exists uh, is well contained by some of these other factors. So what I would like to do today in today's talk is basically do two things. First, start out by trying to define a little bit what exactly anti-Americanism is. In the second part, I want to give you a, a quick overview of some of the sources um, of anti-Americanism in, in Europe. And then I want to finish up with a few quick reflections on what of the possible consequences or non-consequences anti-Americanism in Europe uh, has. So let me first uh, start by um, looking a little bit more closely at what exactly uh, anti-Americanism is. Um, I mean, to start out with, anti-Americanism in Europe is something very different from what it is in the Middle East, right? I mean, it has none of these virulent, violent, uh, um, uh, fanatical qualities that we see uh, uh, in some of these Middle Eastern countries. Anti-Americanism is also very different from other parts in the world. Um, for example, uh, I had a student from India who mentioned, well, you know, 
it's funny, we don't think of it as anti-Americanism. We think of it as anti-Westernism. To us, there's no difference between the US and Europe. You know, you're part of the West, and, and uh, we're equally critical of the both of you. So to them, anti-Westernism is, is, is the, the larger concept rather than specifically anti-Americanism. So what then is um, unique about uh, anti-Americanism? Um, the central point here to, to keep in mind is that anti-Americanism has to do with opinions. Opinions that Europeans hold of the United States and European opinions that are critical of the United States. So there was a famous French um, Secretary of State, uh, Talleyrand, at the time of the French Revolution who had quibbed about the United States. Ah, oh, the United States. It has 32 religions, but only one dish, right? So what is this? It's an opinion of the United States. Um, it seems implicitly to be critical of American culture, or at least American cuisine. Um, so is this anti-Americanism, or is it singing praise of American religious devotion? 32 religion, right? I mean, if you're a religious individual, you would see this as uh, something positive. So here we have an example of, of an opinion expressed of the United States uh, that is ambivalent. Um, so how do we kind of get to the nature of anti-Americanism? And let me try to get at that through a comparison. A comparison of the Amish, who live down the road here, and Joseph Bové. Joseph Bové is a well-known Frenchman um, sort of frontman of uh, the anti-globalization movement and uh, very opinionated gentleman who has been very vocal in his opposition to the United States. So let's think about the Amish first. The Amish have certain opinions about America, the American way of life, right? Uh, that is, they reject, they're critical of a long uh, aspects of American way of life. They try to minimize interaction with non-Amish. They reject the materialism of the American uh, uh, way of life. They, um, um, they reject uh, the free market system with an emphasis on self-reliance and, and, and mutual help. They're rejecting the American government. Don't pay taxes, don't do military service. So in many ways, you have a group here who has opinions of the United States that are highly, highly critical. Let's compare that with uh, Joseph uh, uh, Bové, or Bouvet, who is, um, uh, you know, by trade, he is a, a sheep farmer that uh, manufactures Roquefort cheese, is sort of a very smelly, strong, uh, uh, but very tasteful uh, American cheese. And he became world-renowned in 1999, when he, together with a couple of other farms in South Central France, stormed a McDonald's that was in the middle of uh, construction. They came with their tractors and tore it down. And it was a big media event and made the news in France. And then he was tried and got a lot of publicity. And you know, he is a very media savvy individual and, and used this sort of publicity, again, to express opinions of the United States that you know, an American cuisine uh, was one of the criticisms that he made, or McDonald's fast food, was a threat to uh, haute cuisine, French haute cuisine, that American-style uh, agribusiness was a threat to the family farm and the rural way of life that defines the soul of France. Uh, he was also very critical of you know, genetically modified food 
and more generally of uh, uh, globalization. So here, you know, we have two groups, one individual and one religious community, both expressing critical opinions of the United States. And if you think, if, for a moment, to some extent, uh, Beauvais is less critical of the U.S. He speaks fluently English. In his teen years, he spent, you know, uh, a summer in Berkeley because his parents were uh, doing some research at Berkeley. He visits the United States very often. Um, for all we know, he might drive an American car uh, and, you know, um, consumes and partakes in the market economy. So, in terms of their opinions, right, why do we think of Joseph Beauvais for being anti-American and the Amish not? Is it because he's French and the Amish are not? I don't think so. I think the two defining characteristics that separate Beauvais apart from the Amish is, um, first of all, he is um, he's very radical, he's political. The critique that he makes of the United States is uh, political. He protests, right? He, he was in Seattle during the, the anti-globalization protest. He has been to jail a couple of times for you know, destroying the McDonald's. And uh, some, one other time, I think, he um, destroyed other property of a multinational uh, uh, globalization. So he's an activist, right? The Amish, on the other hand, self-contained. Humility is their uh, uh, prime value. They don't criticize uh, others. They just keep to their values and are not out there um, criticizing the American way of life. So the political nature of Bobet's opinion is one important difference. And the second uh, defining characteristic that separates Bovet from the Amish is that his opinion is biased. That is, his take on the American way of life, his opinion of the United States, has two very uh, key characteristics. One, it's an overgeneralization, right? He takes some aspect, he takes McDonald's and generalizes from McDonald's about much of American culture. So you take one speck uh, of critical opinion and from that you extrapolate an entire view of a country that, you know, is pretty complex and pluralistic. Um, and the second um, characteristic of a biased opinion is that you ignore countervailing evidence. That is, not everybody in the United States eats just Big Macs and fast food, you know? There's Alice Waters out in Berkeley that he should have known about, you know, when he spent who um, sort of is, is one of the, the, the figureheads behind the slow, slow food movement. You know, you have agricultural cooperatives. You have uh, a, a huge sector um, in the food business that now specializes on uh, organic food and so forth. So, you know, there are things in the United States that would lead you to get a slightly more nuanced and differentiated points of view. Somebody who holds a biased opinion blocks that countervailing opinion out. So, this gets us to sort of a definition of anti-Americanism. And anti-Americanism is opinions held of the United States that A, are highly politicized, and B, are biased. Biased in the sense that they tend to overgeneralize and ignore countervailing uh, 
evidence. Let me just give you an example. If a European criticizes the Bush administration for invading Iraq on grounds that it violates international law, that he didn't have an international mandate, that there is very little link between terrorism and Saddam Hussein old regime. This is a critical opinion of the United States that is not biased. It is not politicized. It is based on a reasonably uh, disinterested, impartial reading of the facts. It is critical, but is not anti-American. If somebody, a contrast, criticizes Bush's invasion of Iraq because, you know, the Bush administration is controlled by the oil industry and wanted to secure the control of Middle Eastern oil, then this would be anti-American. Because this is, okay, there's Bush and Cheney, right? They have some links to the oil industry. But there are many others who have no links to the oil industry. The evidence to support that claim is very, very uh, thin. But, you know, you just take that opinion, you over-exaggerate it, you block out countervailing evidence, and that makes it anti-American. It makes it biased, it makes it politicized. Okay? So I think once we sort of define anti-Americanism a little bit more narrowly, a little bit more carefully, we will see that uh, the degree of anti-Americanism, certainly in Europe, is... Uh, relatively small. That is, under that definition, the American tourist who asks for direction, again, in Paris, uh, and is given purposefully the wrong direction, you know, couldn't criticize this as being a manifestation of anti-Americanism. This is, you know, he probably just asked it in a rude way, and the person thought, well, you know, uh, I'll show you, and sent him the wrong direction. You know, it's impolite, it's, it's uh, inconsiderate, but I wouldn't characterize this as anti-American in any meaningful way. So now that we understand a little bit more clearly what anti-Americanism is, let me just touch um, quickly on some of the sources uh, of, um, of anti-American. Um, but before doing so, let me just clarify. I'm talking about anti-Americanism in Europe in a very undifferentiated way. You know, it's very important to keep in mind that Europe is not a single space or a single political entity. You see very important geographic variations. So, for example, anti-Americanism tends to be weakest in East Central Europe. That many of the East Central Europeans hold the U.S. in, in, in high esteem despite, you know, some recent disagreements over Iraq because Americans you know, are associated as, as, as sort of standing up to the Soviet Union, to communism, that um, American, the American government or the American labor movement uh, provided important moral and logistical support for some of the former dissident groups within the communist regimes and therefore helped to kind of contribute to the collapse uh, of communism. So there's a reservoir of goodwill in East Central Europe that is continuous to be reflected in public opinion. Um, a second um, part, um, the United Kingdom and Germany, two or countries usually, if you look at public opinion polls, where anti-American uh, sentiments tend to be uh, lower. And they are again in the German 
is goodwill left over from the liberation of Nazi Germany and the assistance of uh, reconstruction and helping Germany defend itself against uh, you know, communism, Germany being one of the old frontline states and having been divided in East and West Germany. Um, and so here, the U.S. still has a lot of uh, goodwill. In the U.K., you know, sort of the shared language and, and, and common historical legacy, plus Britain not wanting to sort of identify itself with Europe, uh, but as something in between Europe and the United States and always emphasizing the special relationship with the, uh, the U.S. that, you know, has historical roots, uh, having fought two wars side by side against uh, uh, Germany and, and, and other uh, sort of Axis power in Europe. And so this leaves us with, you know, the Greeks, the Italians, and, and the French that usually uh, have the lowest ratings of, of uh, positive sentiments towards the, the U.S. So there are important uh, geographic uh, variations. Also, if you look uh, at variations over time, there are important differences. Clearly, since 2002, uh, um, unfavorable opinions of the United States have increased uh, dramatically. Um, there was also a spike of anti-Americanism during the late 60s, early 70s, reflecting the Vietnam War. Uh, opinions were much more favorable of the United States in the 1950s and early 60s and so forth. So, you know, um, uh, anti-Americanism is not a uniform uh, phenomenon across time and space in Europe, but fluctuates. Having said that, let me just point to some of the sources uh, of this uh, anti-Americanism. Um, the first source is, um, is individualism, you know, that um, most Europeans kind of are befuddled by the Americans' emphasis of liberty and freedom, you know, uh, these words have very different connotations uh, to Americans than they do to uh, Americans, where Americans think of libertarians as people who reject the state and uh, glorify individual responsibility and the market, you know, to Europeans those would be anarchists. Uh, and uh, that difference in, in sort of individualism is also reflective in public opinion results. If you ask uh, Americans whether they believe uh, that success is determined by forces beyond their control, right? That is, uh, to what extent they, they believe that they have control over their own fate or that, you know, circumstances determine your success and happiness in life. Um, only 32% of Americans feel that circumstances controls their success in life. That is, compares with uh, Germans, 62% believe that circumstances determine their success in life. French people, 54%, and the British, 45%. So you can see that Americans, sort of individualism, that you are the fate, you are the master of your own fate, right, uh, as a sort of epitome of this individualism, is much, much stronger than in Europe. Europe tend to be much more fatalistic or believe that, you know, government has to provide them with a helping hand. So individualism is one important source that creates different opinions uh, in Europeans about the United States. A second one is nationalism. 
Europeans are always, when they come over here, befuddled by the number of flags that you see uh, flying around. By the fact that, you know, at, at sporting events, you sing the national anthem and stand up. I mean, go to a sporting event in Europe and, you know, they play the national anthems, but nobody knows the tunes or let alone the lyrics. They sort of mumble along or ignore it altogether. Um, or that um, the thing of the Pledge of the Allegiance, you know, in, in school. Very, very unthinkable in, in, in many European uh, countries. In many ways, to Europeans, the idea of a strong nationalism has mostly negative connotations because nationalism was associated with the two world wars, right? Where you had countries that were very nationalistic, and look what we got. We got military conflict, slaughter, and millions of deaths. So Europeans are post-national. I mean, the whole idea of the European Union was to be moved beyond national identity and create a new, larger uh, European supranational identity in order to preserve uh, um, uh, peace. So nationalism then is another important source of different opinions um, of Europeans. Religion is a third factor. Uh, you know, Americans are um, much more religious. You know, church attendance in the United States is somewhere in the, the low 60% uh, of Americans once a month go to church. If you look at questions, do you believe there is a um, divine uh, a God guiding uh, your life? Again, 80 or 90% of Americans say yes. And in Europe, the figures are much, much lower. Uh, and uh, so you see Europeans also befuddled over debates uh, that we recently had here in Pennsylvania over creationism versus uh, evolution, right? I mean, uh, what, what, what does this, um, these debates been over in, in Europe for a long time, or issues over stem cell uh, research, gay marriage, and all these other sort of moral uh, issues. The, the role of evangelical Christians in, in politics is something that is very difficult for uh, Europeans to comprehend. So religion is a third source of difference. A fourth one um, is um, US-style capitalism, the idea of a free market. Um, that, um, you know, uh, Europeans refer to American-style capitalism sometimes as casino capitalism because it's, you know, Wall Street and the stock market, leverage takeovers, buyouts, and then, you know, the in captains of industry with these huge uh, salaries and so forth. Um, the labor unions don't play a very important role uh, at, 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 at the workplace. And uh, as a result of this sort of freewheeling, laissez-faire capitalism, you have much more significant uh, income inequalities. So capitalism, different styles of capitalism, is another important uh, source of difference. And uh, fifth and final one is approaches to international politics. That Europeans um, do not have a hard time comprehending America's more unilateral approach to international politics. That is the whole Bush doctrine of preventative war that was applied you know, in, 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 in Iraq is very difficult for Europeans to, to comprehend because what Europeans have been trying to construct in the post-war era is a new international order, at least at the regional level. The whole idea of the EU 
is premised of an international rule of law, of the creation of multilateral, multilateral supranational uh, decision-making authorities. If you live in Europe uh, nowadays, roughly 55% of any legislation affecting you as a citizen is passed at the European level, no longer at the national level. So the idea that you have international organization that have significant political authority is not something alien and strange to Europeans, it's normal. It is to them what the 21st century is likely to look like. And so the America's emphasis on military power, on unitary action to Europeans is very bewildering. So if you take those five sources, you know, you can see that they generate opinions, Europeans, that are critical of the United States or difficult to understand the American way of life. But again, it is important to understand that these sources do not explain yet anti-Americanism because these critical opinions that they generate about the United States can also be found in the United States, right? I mean, there are plenty of Americans who feel like that the free market is too unruly, that we have too much social uh, inequality, that unilateralism is a bad idea, that you know the debate over evolution versus creationism is silly and so forth. So we have plenty of, of Americans who have those same opinions about the United States as Europeans, and you wouldn't criticize them as being anti-American. So again, the question becomes, what turns those opinions into anti-Americanism? What turns those, what politicizes them, and what biases them? What is it that uh, leads to those opinions evolving into anti-Americanism? That is, how do these criticisms of the United States become overgeneralized and um, uh, ignoring countervailing information? And here, let me just give you three brief mechanisms or factors that turn this critical opinion of the United States into anti-Americanism. Because after all, there is a little bit of anti-Americanism in Europe, uh, after all. Um, the first one has to do with uh, what um, uh, Charles Joffe called cultural uh, balancing. And that, in effect, um, the argument goes that anti-Americanism is the envy of military weaklings. That Europeans have become militarily so weak, they have cut back on their military spending to such a degree that they no longer can compete with the U.S. militarily. And I think this is a fact that nobody contests, right? I mean, if you look at American military spending, um, it is um, the same as the next 40 countries combined. This is historically unprecedented. Never in uh, human history has one country dominated militarily to the same degree that uh, the U.S. has since the end of the Cold War. So what, what are these other countries supposed to do? Traditionally, what the also-run military powers used to do, they formed alliances. They balanced against 
the number one military power, trying to offset their balance. But just imagine, it's unfeasible. 40 countries, you know, that would include Russia, China, Iran, uh, Europe, uh, the Latin American countries forming an alliance that could stick together and stand up to the United States, it's just not going to happen. So military counterbalancing is not an option. So what do those countries do? They do cultural counterbalancing. That is, they try to undermine the legitimacy of the U.S. governments by criticizing it for being, you know, overly religious, for pointing out the flaws uh, in their economic system, for its inequality, the death penalty, its food, whatever, whatever. You know, so you take all these different sources um, that I just mentioned, you lump them together and just use them in an undifferentiated attack to essentially um, malign the United States and hope that this way, you know, you can somehow uh, offset the military dominance of the United States. And so you can see here where the bias is, right? Because it gives you a very one-sided uh, view uh, of the US's international role. Some of these count cultural counterbalances would have you believed that the United States behaves internationally no different than the old Soviet Union did, or maybe even Hitler, right? That they are just an imperialistic power that is bent on, 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 on domination. So you, you, you take the American unilateralism, exaggerate it to the nth degree, and overlook a whole bunch of countervailing evidence you overlook the fact that much of the international UN system was a creation of the United States in the post-war era. Um, you overlook the fact that the UN, on a whole host of issues, engages in multilateral negotiations and abides by international treaty. It's a member of the World Trade Organization, right, and negotiates trade reductions uh, and so forth. So what, what becomes, therefore, uh, anti-American is that you selectively pick your facts, over-exaggerate them, ignore countervailing evidence in order to achieve the political goal of trying to contain American military power. Um, let me talk about a second factor um, that contributes to anti-Americanism in Europe. And that is um, some uh, electoral motivations. We have seen over the last couple of years in Germany, uh, about eight years ago under uh, uh, Schroeder, Chancellor Schroeder, and then in France under Girac, uh, elections are coming up. You're down in the opinion polls, and you need to do something in order to boost your, um, your standing in public opinion polls. Uh, you know, you already have a deficit that is sky high, so you can't promise any more programs. Um, you can't uh, promise any tax cuts or, or use any other sort of economic incentives in order to attract voters. So you uh, start bashing the United States. Uh, you use the United States as a scapegoat for, you know, well, I'm sorry that we have to lay off 
uh, so many people and the economy is so slow, but you know, international trade, uh, this American invention, uh, is contributing uh, to this factor, you know, and, and we can't really do much uh, about it because uh, otherwise the UN will take us to the World Trade Organization. So you, you use uh, criticism of the United States in order to uh, boost your, your, your standing among, um, um, among the electorate and um, boost your, um, your electoral fortunes. So these are um, two factors that help us understand how uh, these mere opinions that are critical in the United States get transformed into anti-Americanism. And let me add a third and final source that contributes to anti-Americanism, and this is American domestic politics. Very often you have situations where American politicians are interested in using critical foreign opinions of the United States, exaggerating them, turning them into Americanism in order to gain domestic uh, political uh, support. So, for example, if the UN criticizes the American government for Abu Ghraib or human rights abuses in Guantanamo Bay, right, um, rather than responding uh, factually, what you do is you criticize the UN as being a corrupt anti-American uh, institution that is just interested in uh, US bashing and therefore you have two effects. One, you delegitimize the criticism of the uh, UN and two, you have sort of a rallying around the flag effect because hey, guys, if these foreigners don't like us, the only thing domestically you have to do is rally behind the president and support him and his agenda. So we have therefore also domestically you know, incentives for poli politicians to exaggerate, to politicize criticisms of the United States coming from abroad, exaggerating them in order to build political support. So this is um, sort of an attempt to give you an idea of um, what generates anti-Americanism in, um, in Europe. And so to conclude, I just wanted to um, make a few uh, observations about what consequences this anti-Americanism has. But let me first restate. If you define anti-Americanism in such narrow terms, it's a relatively uncommon and, 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 and rare occurrence. So anti-Americanism in Europe is not very, very uh, widespread. And if you look, some scholars have been trying to analyze uh, whether increase of, of um, criticism and public opinion of the US has had certain consequences. Um, and they looked first at economic consequences. The suspicion was that if Europeans are more critical of the United States, this might lead to boycotts of American goods, that this might undermine the appeal of American brands like you know, Nike or McDonald's or Starbucks uh, or what have you, and that Europeans then out of um, dislike for the United States would switch to other products that are not American. 
And so what they did is they compared, for example, sales of Nike with Adidas, you know, which are the exact same commodities. One is owned by an American company, the other one European. They looked at yogurt sales, you know, craft uh, foods, and and Danone, a French company, and did the same things for a whole bunch of other factors, and found that in terms of sales, there were no differences. So in terms of consumer behavior and economic behavior, um, anti-Americanism has had no uh, repercussions whatsoever. Another area where um, people were suspecting possible consequences was in diplomatic endeavors. That the United States, for example, would have uh, faced much less cooperation from European governments in, for example, dealing with anti-terror measures. You know, there's a lot of cooperation, sharing of intelligence, signing new uh, uh, treaties, integrating information structures, uh, and so forth. Um, and again, what they found was that there was very little uh, evidence that Europeans were less willing to support and cooperate with the U.S., even during the Bush administration, in fighting uh, terrorism, for obvious reasons, because terrorism is just as much a problem in Europe as it is in the United States. Um, and so, um, yeah, so the, the concluding point, therefore, is, is there are so many more shared interests and values between uh, the US uh, and Europe um, that differences in opinion uh, are readily uh, contained. Look at economics. The US and Europe are the two largest uh, mutual foreign investors. That the investment of Europe in the United States and the United States in Europe accounts for 80% of each other's uh, foreign direct investment. So there are huge shared uh, mutual economic interests that will try to contain any attempts by politicians to use some of these differences in opinions, politicize them, and, and exaggerate them. Um, same thing I had mentioned with uh, the fight of, of terrorism. This is a shared uh, threat that both uh, Europe and the United States face. And again, you know, you may disagree on, um, on Iraq, but you sure are going to cooperate in fighting terrorist cells. And uh, the best example of this is uh, Afghanistan, where you have a large number of European uh, troops assisting, working side by side with the United States, trying to um, bring political stability uh, to that part of the country. So um, this leaves me with one final thought. Maybe one reason the Europeans are so mad about the US is because the US doesn't care about Europe nearly as much as uh, Europeans care about the United States. That is, that maybe Europeans are mad that there is no anti-Europeanism in the United States. And um, one scholar, Timothy Gordon Ash, defined anti-Europeanism as a benign indifference mixed with an impressive degree of ignorance. Okay? So on that uh, note, um, I'll be happy to entertain any questions that you might have or personal experiences, um, having traveled in, in, in Europe. Yes? Um, what effect do you think the, uh, the presidential election will have on anti-American sentiment 
do you think, uh, you know, I, I, do you think it'll be like an overnight? I don't think it'll be an overnight sensation or things like that. Well, I mean, that's an interesting sort of almost experiment of the argument I was 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 um, uh, making that you know. Um, Let's suppose Obama wins the election, right? I mean, you would have uh, the U.S. moving from one extreme, a unilateral, uh, very conservative, um, very militaristic president to one, well, we don't know that much about his, his, his foreign policy, but uh, presumably it will be more multilateral. And, 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 you know, he's against the war in Iraq, for one thing, takes the... the um, wants to take the, the, the troops out of Iraq very quickly would be a 180 degree shift and it would be interesting to see to what extent this uh, is reflected in public opinion. I think it, you'd see a dramatic change. Uh, I mean just look, Clinton was loved in Europe, right? Bush is, is reviled. Um, and so I think the nature of, of, of American leadership and policy plays uh, a very important role. And here, the important thing, that difference sometimes has more to do with style than substance, right? It wasn't that Clinton was a raving multilateralist. Okay, so he signed the Kyoto Agreement, but he should drag his feet trying to get it ratified uh, in the Senate. The same thing with uh, the International Court of Justice. So his policies were, were, the difference in his policies, right, were far less radical than uh, with Bush. And if you look at the style, though, there was the big difference. Here you have, you know, Bush down in Texas, you know, on the fan farm, his horse, going to church, believing, you know, he has a special relationship uh, with God, using a religious language. And here you got Bush, uh, Clinton, you know, sort of the very mundane, philandering, uh, bon vivant, um, who is intellectual, you know, studied in England and so forth. So that, that, that difference in style, I think, uh, played a very important role why Europeans had more favorable opinions of um, Clinton than they do of, of Bush. And, and, you know, with Obama, here now you have, you know, an African-American blacks um, who becomes president would be even more uh, uh, popular. Yeah, Cedric? Um, well, just a couple of points about what he said. Um, you went toward the direction about disaggregating kind of the, this notion about um, European entire Americanism, you talk about geographic differences. Mm. Um, I mean, I think we need to go further, and not only in terms of national differences about a prejudice. There is a French anti-Americanism, a German anti-Americanism, but also even within France, we need to take a look at it from a political perspective. I mean, there is um, a leftist anti-Americanism mm. and a rightist anti-Americanism, which have different reasons for the anti-Americans of the left in France is very much based on the idea of the United States representing raw capitalism, mm. the impersonal society, versus the right, which is more, the U.S. is responsible for the decline of France. Um, very much older, I mean, we see bridges, but I, I think there's really need to disaggregate the reasons for this anti-Americans. Anti-Americans is a label, yet, but the reason, they, they have different reasons for um, either way, hating or ha at least having a presence against the United States. Um, 
So I, I think it's important to, to go on with the, this disaggregation about, about water pressure. There is also a, Euro, um, a European anti-Americanism, yet which is connected to the construction of, um, of the European Union itself. Yet I think it only, it only exists if one's identity in Europe is actually, the, the salient identity is actually the European one. Yes, I mean, uh, look, um, I mean, you, you, you picked up where I said, you know, there are national differences, and you said, well, there are also subnational differences. There's an anti-Americanism of the left and the right, and there's an anti-Americanism of the 19th century, the interwar period, the 19th, um, it, it, um, I mean, one of the peculiar thing about anti-Americanism is, is, you know, it's a set of ideas and opinions that is so incredibly amorphous. I mean, there's not a single writer that is associated with anti-Americanism. It's not an ideology, right? Uh, there's not a particular group that, that is sort of the, um, the, the gatekeeper of, of defining anti-Americanism. Uh, it constantly changes uh, uh, with, with time. And um, so, you know, that's why I sort of emphasize its opinions. I mean, it's, it's, it's just like, um, you know, and then the, we, we have opinions of each other. I mean, there is, you know, different groups have different opinions of each other. There's, there's, there's anti-Frenchism anti among the Germans or anti-Germanism within Europe. So it's, it's not like all the Europeans, uh, you know, don't have resentments or, or criticisms of, of one another. It's just part of, of a fact of life of, 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 of any society. You know, in this country, we have racism, we have sexism, we have anti-Semitism. I mean, wherever you have group differences, you have uh, opinions that are critical of one another. And then the question becomes, as you know, with, with, with racism, at what point is, 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 is a critical opinion of the other group legitimate? You know, an honest uh, criticism or dissent? At what point does it become biased? So you, you, you see in American politics with you know, the race card. I mean, you, you criticize certain groups, you're immediately labeled uh, um, a racist, and that automatically squashes uh, any criticism. Um, and that is, is, is you know, something similar with, with um, anti-Americanism anti here in the US. You have foreign countries uh, or groups criticizing the United States, do you label them anti-American? That's the end of it, right? You no longer have to engage with the substance of it because uh, anti-Americanism is, is just self-evidently illegitimate and, and therefore does not have to be in, in, engaged. So there, I mean, your, your point is, 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 is a good one about uh, the, the further nuances um, and, uh, and, and differences. But I, I also, the, the, the point that you just mentioned actually, which is that one prejudice really often hides another, which is that there is some strong connections between um, national prejudices, mm. such, such as anti-Americanism, mm. but also homophobia, for instance, or racism and so on. I, th I think that if we look at um, psychological explanation about prejudice, mm. usually, usually one person who's prejudiced is not only prejudiced against one nation, but also has different type of prejudice altogether. Yeah, okay, there's, there's, there's uh, I mean, that's a good point. Um, um, one argument that is frequently made is, is that, for example, the, the recent surge of anti-Americanism is a veiled form of anti-Semitism. Uh, right, that, that you know, American capitalism, Wall Street, Jews, uh, American foreign policy, the Middle East. The reason why we invaded Iraq is to help out, you know, the Israeli and and and, and so forth. 
Um, and so it's, it's a very delicate uh, issue because you, you see here in, in the US, right, um, certain groups criticizing Europeans criticism of US Middle Eastern policy for, look, this is anti-Semitic. So therefore, we don't have to deal with it. it it's, it's not legitimate. It's a form of racism, right? Um, and then you have Europeans are saying, well, look, I mean, let's look at this. You know, uh, are you treating the Palestinians fairly? Are you, um, um, you know, favoring Israelis over, over uh, Palestinian interests and so forth? And, um, and and squashes that, that debate. I mean, it's a debate that's been raging here in the U.S. and will be coming to campus on April 10th, um, you know, about the book, The Israel Lobby, where two IR scholars have written about how certain sort of an alliance of Christian fundamentalists and various uh, uh, Jewish groups have formed a lobby that have made it impossible for Americans to criticize uh, U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. And this has generated a, a huge uh, a controversy. And one of the authors, um, Ken Walt, uh, will be here on, on campus on, on, on April 10th talking about uh, the book. Yes? Do you think anti-Americanism is justified? Like, do you think America deserves it? Like, do you see a basis? Anti-Americanism is never justified, right? I mean, it's just like uh, anti-Semitism or racism. That is, it is, is you, you take a kernel of, of valid criticism, you overgeneralize it, and you ignore countervailing evidence. Um, and that by, makes it biased. And anything that is biased is, 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 is harmful, is hurtful, uh, and, uh, and therefore is never justified. Uh, so that's why it's important. Is criticizing American foreign policy in the Middle East and in Iraq justified? Absolutely. It's just a question how it's done. Is it even-handed? Is it reasonably fair? Is it factually based? Um, and you know, the, the, the point I was trying to make is, is very often um, some of the legitimate criticisms of things American get politicized because it serves certain political advantages. Uh, Sedgwick was, was uh, bringing up the um, issue of European identity, right? Europe has been trying to construct this new thing called the European Union. We're not quite sure, is it an international organization, is it a new nation state, what have you. Uh, but there's been a widespread agreement among European leaders that for this European Union to become stronger, it needs some European identity. There is one there, but it's very thin, very um, weak. And so one way in order to strengthen this European identity is by positioning it as the anti-America. That what the, EU, you, uh, what the EU is, is everything that the US is not. It is a political organization that believes in multilateralism and the rule of law rather than military power. It is um, an organization that believes in some degree of social uh, equality and solidarity which the US uh, does not. So here is, 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 it's a very tricky thing. I mean I wouldn't say that 
the EU's attempt to define itself in juxtaposition to the US is anti-American, but it comes very close uh, at times because the more distinct the differences are, right, the stronger the incentives are for Europeans to uh, believe, hey, you know, we really are European. If they are so different, if they all believe in, in creationism, right, and are these, 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 these fanatical evangelicals, uh, you know, we're so different that, uh, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, if you only see red America and ignore blue America, uh, then being European is something so distinct that makes you then proud to be European. Um, so, you know, you, you, you have to use this very, very uh, uh, carefully. And, and I think, by and large, it would be difficult to, to excuse European leaders, that is, you know, the, the Commission and so forth, uh, of being uh, anti American. Any other uh, questions? Yes? Would you say that um, American people? Well, if Americans elected Obama, Europe wouldn't see it favorably? No, we'd see it very favorably. Why? Um, well, because in many ways, you know, um, the, um, the Bush administration, right, has made it easier for those political constituencies in Europe that try to exaggerate, overgeneralize the differences between Europe and the United States. Uh, you know, because he's a very polarizing figure even domestically here in the United States. So, in having made it easier for some of these uh, uh, groups to fan the flames of European anti-Americanism, you know, um, now it would be particularly startling to a European if all of a sudden that same country, right, eight years later, get somebody like uh, Obama, which is uh, the, the whole opposite. I mean, because one of the charges of the US is that you know, part of its economic inequality is very racist, right? Because it's the blacks, African-Americans, who are very often at the bottom of the um, uh, economic ladder. And the interesting thing is whenever you have a hostage taking of Americans anywhere in the world, the first people who are almost freed are African-Americans because the world has sympathy with African-Americans because they are the repressed, you know, they are sort of um, reinforce among anti-Americans of how bad the U.S. is. Um, and so to have now an African-American become president, it's, it's like, hold on, they were supposed to be racists, right, um, uh, unilateralists, and, um, um, and all these other things, and here you have a person who is the exact opposite. I mean, it would throw them for a total loop, and uh, you know, it would be interesting to see how they um, uh, react. I mean, if you read European newspapers, they're totally fascinated by, by Obama, because he's not really American, right? He's European. Uh, you know, he, he can't be American, because he contradicts all these, these, these stereotypes and preconceptions that many Europeans um, have. And uh, anything else? No? Well, then, thanks very much for coming. And uh, have a good night. <laughs>